So welcome back to How AI Built This, uh, the podcast dedicated to data and entrepreneurial storytelling. Um, as always, we're brought to you by Cathcart Associates, so huge thank you to them. Uh, on today's episode, I'm speaking to Niels Tony, um, CEO of Sprout AI, uh, a startup building the most advanced AI claims and fraud solution. Uh, welcome to the show, Niels. Thank you. Thank you. It's amazing to be here. Thank you for coming on. Before we jump into Sprout and uh, what you and the team are doing, let's go back a little bit. So you're from Belgium, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Born and raised. I don't know if that's a good thing, but yes. <laughs> it's our first ever Belgian. I, I say that quite a lot on the show now because we've had a lot of different people coming on, but our first Belgian. Um, and we found out off air that uh, also probably our first ex-professional football player. <laughs> almost. <laughs> almost almost ex-professional. <laughs> if it wasn't for Kevin De Bruyne. No, so we always start kind of education. I looked on LinkedIn, as always, and you have a master's in work and organizational psychology. The main reason I jump into this first is because nobody in data really has the same background. Like we've had a few people who've done PhD in physics, a few people that have done something in the kind of computer science world, some people in business, but no one really seems to come from like a kind of copy and paste type background, which is maybe true for other industries. Yeah, I don't think we've had anyone with a kind of organizational psychology background. I mean, what what drove you to that kind of back then? Yeah, yeah, good good question. And, and you're right. I think in terms of like, it's still like AI is still like the wild wild west out there. So you can still be a cowboy, which is which is pretty neat. Um, and um, but also will probably change over the years. But so what what drove me to that? Um, it, to be honest. <sighs> My educational choice was pretty kind of uninspired in a way. So, so coming out of high school, I had way too many interests. I found everything interesting: engineering, history, languages. I was like, oh, should I go and study Latin, or, <laughs> or should I, you know, whatever. So, so, um, but also people. I've always found people really, really, really interesting and um, behavior and, and stuff. So, so when I graduated from high school, I really didn't know what to do. So, I, I basically, I'm quite embarrassed to admit this. I told my parents, I said, look, you choose something, and I'll go and study it. And so they both studied psychology themselves. So I guess kind of they were biased and they chose psychology. And, and I was like, oh, you know, fine, sounds good. And then the thing is, I, you know, I spent five years on master's is five years. And I really, really enjoyed it, especially kind of um, the social psychology aspects, which is basically uh, in social psychology, you study behavior of individuals in a group context. And especially in the work environment, I always found it quite interesting. And um and you know what? It's funny, but because I still use it to this day, because when you work with big enterprises like insurance companies, um, it requires a lot of reading of group dynamics. So, so let me give you an example. It takes on average 5.4 decision makers to say yes during an enterprise sales process. They have to actively say yes. So, and lining those yeses up is, is basically like herding cats. And, um, so I guess in a roundabout way, it's, it, it has become, um, pretty useful. Um, a side note there, actually not many people realize this, but when you study psychology, there is a huge amount of statistics um, that's involved. And, and you know, ML, AI, data science is basically very, very advanced um, statistics. Yeah. So, so it, was, it was a pretty good foundation. I, I wouldn't, wouldn't dare say I'm, I'm technical, but it does give you a bit of a good grounding to at least understand the, the impact of data and how it helps you um, solve problems. Nice. No, that actually rings a bell. I think someone else, um, I don't want to say who it was in case I'm wrong, but I'm sure someone else had a, a background in psychology and, and I was asking them about the relation to st- statistics. And that's what she said, that you 
you can't really get away from it. Um, also love that you asked your parents what to do. I don't think I've ever said on the show, but I, I just did a management and marketing degree because two of my friends were. So I was like, yeah, I mean, that's, <laughs> that, that sounds all right. Yeah. Um, it's quite when you're really, 18, it's pretty tricky. <laughs> yeah, they should definitely not make people decide what they want to do for the rest of their life at 18. No, it's cool that you still use it. And it does make sense when you're going into big enterprises, kind of having the the know-how and it's happened um there's a few people on the show like someone had been on that did languages and she felt that the skill of translating actually worked quite well in her role as a kind of business focused ai person because her role was to influence and translate like technical requirements um and and although it's different from english to french it's still the same skill of like making something understandable um so no that makes sense and i suppose after the master's We'll do a quick whistle stop through your career just now. But, I mean, you touched on e-commerce, um, setting up a, a clothing company, marketing, and obviously now um, at Sprite, which we'll get into. Was there a path after your master's where you thought, that's what I want to do? Or did it take a bit of doing these different things to kind of work that out? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's a really good question. And I do appreciate my, my, my career path in a way. It's not super straightforward. I actually always wonder like how some people have gone from a really straight and linear career path into entrepreneurship because, you know, it's quite astounding because both are very different animals and require very different kind of characteristics and personalities. Um, but for me, I think the, so, so, you know, when I was at uni, I wanted to actually do a PhD. So I, you know, I, I did my best and I, I graduated top of my class and I was quite lucky and they offered me a PhD. I was like, yes. And then actually I did a tour of all the PhD students and they were sitting there. I mean, it's, it's a very inspired choice, but they were sitting there in little cubicles, basically doing what the professor told them, being workhorses. And, and that really, after five years of studying, didn't really appeal to me. So I got whisked away by this company that came to our uni and offered a company car and a phone and a nice salary. And that was so, so silly. But I think the common denominator really is is to solve problems. I love building stuff. I love solving problems. And then, so my previous startup, we what we aimed to solve was the e-commerce sizing issue. Like returns are over 50% in retail. It's, it's a huge amount of res- reserve that they need to keep. And uh, so we built something for that, actually with the help of, of the Imperial College Maths um, Department. But to be honest, the market, in terms of the enterprise market there, all the pattern builders, they weren't ready for that to embrace that change. So it, we had to pivot to kind of, okay, if they don't want to do it, let's manufacture our own garments to bring this to market. And um, in the end, we ended up selling that business to, to a private concern in France. And it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was a life-changing exit, but, but it was a good learning experience. I've always been entrepreneurial before. I, honestly, I know everyone wants to be an entrepreneur nowadays. It's like being in a band, you know, when we were teenagers. But I, I, I did it before I knew what the term meant. It's like, um, you know, when... You know, it's only been popular for like five or ten years. Before that, you know, it didn't really, it wasn't a thing. So, but, you know, um, like a little anecdote. When I was five or six, I grew up in this Belgian kind of town. We had geese. And um, not many people had geese in the garden. So, and they lay eggs, you know, obviously. And they're like quite sizable eggs. So, what I did is I was five or six. I, I'd collect the eggs and I'd go sell them to the neighbors for 50p a piece. So, I just got, and then when I was 19, I, I went on a, on a trip to Vietnam um, and um, with, a, with a friend. And after that, I realized there was no, there were no luxury cars there because of communism and their whole import. So I went to source kind of secondhand Audis and Porsches and put them on a boat to Vietnam and sell them. <laughs> like really random. Actually made me quite a bit of pocket money throughout uni, but it wasn't, wasn't really scalable. So <laughs> That's um, amazing. 
Yeah. So I guess the, the threat throughout is I kind of, you know, I like really, really, really like helping people. Um, my mum, my mum's a labor politician, has been for 30 years. Um, my dad's an entrepreneur who built up a social enterprise. So I kind of, it was fed to me since I was a child, like helping people is great, solving problems is great. So, so I think that's kind of the, if you had to kind of pick a red thread that it would be, it would be kind of building, building stuff and, and helping. Nobody's compared entrepreneurs to rock stars on the show before, but it's totally uh, good. It's a really it's, good comparison because so many rock stars just play like small little shitty gigs and never make it, and they do it till they're sixty. Yeah. And then w- one of those people will make it to like Wembley Arena or Glastonbury. Like it's the same thing, yeah. isn't it? Like little like entrepreneurs <laughs> with like a tech startup, they get a bit of seed money, they do okay, and then it goes nowhere. And yeah, then there's it's... like that one person that gets the, the Facebook exit, like whatever. Yeah, it's it's really tricky, man. Like, look, uh, some friends of mine like who work in banking or whatever, like quite traditional jobs, are now asking me like, hey, I might want to do a startup. And I'm like, you know, what, what would you do, Niels? And, and I'm like, and I'm, I genuinely say to them, if you could do anything else in the world, anything else that would make you happy, go do that instead. Because it might sound, look cool from the outside. It really, really, really is, is like, it's really, really tricky. It's really hard. It's like a, someone described it to me as every day is like um, razor blades and party hats. You know, <laughs> the, the amount of downs severely outweigh the amount of ups. Um, but if, if you love building stuff and you can't imagine doing anything else, then go do it. Otherwise, do something else. I know it sounds really cynical and sad, no, but, it's, but it's really good. To but it's my that. reality. I think it's good to hear that on shows like this, though, because entrepreneurships became or startups have become this like this like glamorized thing where like young hotshot entrepreneur sets up a company and like everything's all great and they win all these awards and stuff. When in reality, they end up not making any money or giving too much of it to investors or they get fucked over by their business partner. Like there's all these different things that happen, but obviously they they don't make the news. I mean, on the show. On this show and in the, the Scottish um, tech series that I do, almost every entrepreneur I've spoke to, like some of them have sold their house to try and make the business work. So they just like rent for a while. Some of them have not taken a salary for six months. Like th- some of them are down to their last couple of hundred quid in the bank and worried about paying their staff that month. Like, yeah. it, it's, it, like you said, there's a lot of challenges, but if it's what you love doing and you want to make it work, then awesome. Yeah, exactly. It's it's not a wise career choice, really. <laughs> There's some statistics around. If you um, people think, oh, it's going to make me rich, but if you go and do a traditional career path, you will statistically end up making more money than by going into entrepreneurship. Yeah. Um, so that, that hence, you know, don't do it for the money. Don't do it for whatever fame you think you'll have. Do it because there's generally nothing else. You can't think of anything else and, and be happy. Someone said to me as well, like it's like everyday micro unhappiness but macro happiness because you, you have a purpose. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I'm, I'm just waffling on, but yeah. No, but I think like if, if everyone who set up a company or, or, or was working at a startup had that idea of like, they couldn't think of doing anything else, they'd probably do quite well financially because there's a drive there. There's probably a lot of people kind of half-assing startups or entrepreneurship or have a safety net or something like that, which is maybe one of the reasons, I'm sure there's lots of reasons, but one of the reasons why it might, it might not work out. Yeah. Well, um, a lot of us tend to be pale male and stale as well, right? Let's be honest about <laughs> that. And then it's often because we've had the privilege to, to even, or the, and the confidence to, to go out and venture on your own. Um, because you have some kind of luxury in a way that, you know, you're, you're not going to be out on the street in itself. Yeah. Entrepreneurship is a privilege. Yeah. Um, 
so anyway, I don't want to get too deep here, but but yeah. So no, I read something. I actually read something this morning um, where someone was like, "Stop putting off quitting your full time job. Just go, just go do it. Just go be a freelancer. Just go be an entrepreneur." It's like the worst advice ever. Like if you've got a family and a mortgage to pay for, like yeah, that's boring. But like also calculated risks are also quite sensible rather than yes. just saying, do you know what? Screw it. And yes. then being homeless, for example. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. This is one of my bugbears really. So I'm going to go off on a tangent again, but people think entrepreneurs uh, embrace like love risk and taking big risk. And, and it's completely the opposite. My friends are like, Oh my God, you took a major risk. And I was like, that's not true. Everything I do all day, every day is looking how to protect the downside. How, where's the risk? How do I protect against the risk? How do I end up? How does this business end up in a good position regardless of the risk we're facing? It is not about embracing risk and jumping in like an idiot. It's about taking very calculated small gambles, having the ability to go into a few cold sacks and then being able to retract from that and then go into a different direction. So so it's constantly protecting against your downside. That That's the actual reality of it. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Well, let's fast forward a little bit. So anyway, yeah. <laughs> no, no, it's really good though. I think that's really important. Um, but no, let's fast forward to to kind of twenty eighteen time and and Sprout AI becomes becomes something. So for anyone that doesn't know what the company does and kind of I suppose probably quite important as well is kind of the the origin story behind it, like how it came to to be, and given just what we've talked about with your background, how you kind of become the the CEO of an AI company. Yeah, and, and that might sound odd, right, at first glance, but if you think about it, like Lemonade, which has done extremely well, they're actually valued at more than Hiscox now, which is a, like to compare, you know, uh, Lemonade is a, is a property um, insurance company, like a, like a neo insurer in the States, and, and um, you've got you know, Marshmallow, and you've got Hippo, and you've got Tractable here in London, who've done incredibly well. They recently became a unicorn. All of those founders and CEOs or, or founding teams, they, they were not from an insurance background. So I'm actually not the old one out. I'm, I'm, I'm the, you know, the, the state quo there. So, so maybe insurance needed people from outside of it to, to innovate um, or to change things from outside in. So anyway, yeah, so I totally agree with that. Yeah. So as a, as a side note, but, um, but yeah, so, so how did I end up here? Um, let me, let me have a think. So, so we started at Imperial College at the incubator called the Enterprise Lab. And my thanks to them because they were nothing but supportive. Of, you know, free, just having a free space to work already in London is, is amazing. And so this is straight after we sold the previous company. And we're basically looking for a new challenge. And at that time, now looking back, it was quite serendipitous. But but at th- that time, I was embroiled in a, in, a, in a motor insurance claim. So a scooter drove into the door of my car and it was a real pain. It was a hassle. And I was basically, I felt treated like a criminal by my insurance company who I pay a premium every year. And this process was so fraught with kind of mistakes and inefficiencies that I was, I was quite pissed off to be honest. And then uh, at the same time at Imperial, so there was a data set around claims that we could play with in a sandbox environment. So I basically went to figure out is my experience an anomaly or is it the status quo? And guess what? Obviously, it was the status quo. Like, just to quote a number, in this country, in the UK, but also across the world, we have to wait on average 25 days for a claim to be settled. Now, the, let me stop there for a second, right? 25 days seems, oh, it's just a number. But imagine when, you, when, you, when you're when you in a claims process, so you've got a car crash, 
uh, you end up in hospital, a relative dies or a loved one. Um, you, you know, it, it's, it's moments when you are extremely vulnerable and you're financially vulnerable, emotionally, physically vulnerable. All right. Some of these moments in life you really don't want to have. And, and then having what has actually been voted the worst customer service in the world by people that that's not okay. So, so, you know, so what I basically had a personal experience and then I had the chance, you know, the, the luck to be able to dive into a data set and find that, this is everyone's going through this and then so i was like okay so this is a, this is interesting so there's a problem and then what i learned from my previous businesses i i need to know that people are willing to change the problem so i, I did a period of, of really intense due diligence um so which is a you know you need to have that prerequisite to have a successful business are people going to buy what you make so i spoke to a lot of people in the insurance space and i got really strong validation everyone is having the issue from chile to japan to the uk and then I went to talk to VCs as well um, because I wanted to know, are they investing in, in InsureTech? And, and they were actually, there was a, they were investing more and more. So everything came together and maybe you could call it like a perfect storm, right? So I had a personal experience, which was extremely frustrating. I had data availability, which is very important. I had a huge problem ahead of me, a low threshold to enter the market and funding availability to resource for success and scale. So um, everything was there. So we just decided to give it a go. And then from there, it snowballed, really. So we sold our first pilot on the back of an MVP and a really crummy deck that I built. Then investment came in, then customers followed, more investment followed. And now we've raised, I mean, not massive amounts, but about $15 million so far and 30 people. So, so, so we have grown since, you know, um, since about two and a half, three years ago. No, it's amazing, and and we'll get it. We'll we'll unpick some of that story um, as well. But in terms of the platform itself, how what if someone didn't know what you guys did? What what would be your kind of like snapshot of what does Sprout AI? How do you help? Uh, well, I can go really high level and can go quite in depth. But like really high level, we we help insurance companies settle claims in real time instead of those twenty five days. So we are really focused on the end customer. We don't deal with the end customer, but what we do is we help. Insurance companies circumvent what is legacy IT, legacy process, legacy mindset to bring that 25 days to real time, which is quite transformational, really. And then the results of that are you as a customer, you're vulnerable, you make a claim, you just get help immediately. You get set, you get that settled immediately. And what's really cool, like a, like a really big, this is a feature, not a bug, like we say it internally. Um, when you do that, you know, there's a lot of claims that don't require human assistance. Like let's say you break your phone. You don't want someone to phone you up and say, are you okay? No, you just want a new phone. But, you know, when you have a car crash or your house floods or, or your, your, your grandma dies or your mom dies, whatever, you want someone to be there for you. So what we do effectively is we take away all the crap, all the chores that a, a claim handler has to do, all the manual interactions, and we liberate them to be uniquely human, So which means empathy. And to pick up the phone to you and say, hey, Liam, are you okay? I know this is really tough. We're going to help you now. That that is what we do, and and I see this as as um as a, it's it's like a business backed charity. I mean that's a bit too far, and my investors won't like me saying that. But but it's like it's a win win win. So the end customer wins. You're vulnerable. You get help immediately. No extra hassle. We remove. You know we we help the insurance company remove that pain. The second thing is the insurance company can run way more effectively and efficiently operationally as well. No more, no more kind of rubbish. And then we win obviously because, um, because they pay us to do that. So, so I think it's really that, you know, anyway, and that's, that's how we, that's how we roll. <laughs> and, you guys, and you guys help with like fraudulent claims as well, right? How does that come into mm. 
Yes. So I, I want to, you know, not, not to go into too much insurance um, lingo, but like we are not a specialist fraud case management tool. Okay. We do fraud. So, so what we aim to do is what we call straight to processing in, in, in the industry. So automated settlement from A to Z. We, we automate the entire workflow, right? As part of that, you need to check for fraud because what often happens is that fraudsters or people that are abusive, they, they will, one, make your premium more expensive because there's overhead to figure that out and to slow down the whole queue. So what you want to do is you want to make sure you do some hard checks on fraud and you want to validate for something not being fraudulent because then you can actually go and settle it automatically. So the way that happens with us is at point of claim. So in real time, we do some checks like document authenticity and uh, we, we, we apply some, some ML algorithms to it so we can validate whether, whether something is not fraudulent. And if there's an anomaly, it gets pinged to another system or another team called SIU, Special Investigative Unit, to validate whether something is, in fact, fraud. So we say not yes, but we say no, it's not fraud. And that's a very important distinction because claim teams and fraud teams are effectively two different departments. And we focus entirely on claims because fraud is only 5% of the entire volume. We focus on the 95 other percent. That makes sense. SIU sounds so cool as well until you realize I know, it's, right? just, like, it's just insurance. They, yeah, they have, but you know what? They have often like ex-police detectives on there and stuff. You have some yeah, really cool to people. Try, like, yeah, just to try and catch things that they've seen before. Oh, yeah. Um, so we've actually, you, you touched on this already, which is awesome. But so Sprout's probably a really good example of the exact opposite of what the Daily Mail will have everyone believe, that AI is not taking the claims handler's jobs. It's actually just making their job easier. And like you said, using their skill, which is empathy, rather than boring, mundane tasks, which can be done in real time. Is that fair? It's um, it's it's very fair to say, yes. Exactly. We unlock human the human unique potential by removing all the all the chores um and by doing that we're also our, our ai is better at it than a human it's it just you know so we remove the impact of human error at the same time so we always benchmark our ai against human performance which is what you tend to do with ai and it actually we, we it's it's got superhuman performance in what it does so it's actually better as a, than a human at doing it which unlocks the human to be um to be focused on being better at what only humans can do yeah, we've had loads of this, but any sort of chatbot, conversational AI, it's hard to make, it's hard to stop it being relatively basic, like in terms of if a conversation goes a certain way and it's never seen that before or it doesn't understand emotion, like that's where people get pissed off and customer service can be bad and you end up with an irate customer on the phone. So yeah, if you can if you can do the bits you're really good at and leave them to do the bits they're good at you can see you can see why it would work and also we talked we we, we mentioned this already but it's probably worth mentioning again but it's definitely insurance is just one of those examples of an industry that could just really do with a real kind of shake up from technology right like it's just it's just so old it is um, uh, but but also people tend to kind of shit on insurance uh, but but also you know it's old. It's been around for centuries, but that also means that we have to give them some credit. They know how to stick around, yeah, and so true. they know how to, you know, survive. And and sometimes that has a bit of a lag on it. But for example, COVID and um, COVID really showed them you cannot be relying on these outdated processes, and, and so they're now kind of investing more. Um, at the at the heart of it, insurance is a social democratic concept, right? You 
pay me a little bit every month. And if something really bad happens to you that you can't afford really logistically, financially, I will be your guardian angel. That is the actual concept. Now, in reality, unfortunately, <laughs> it's not that it's not that rosy, but, but we want to bring it back to that kind of to that kind of state. Anyway, I even forgot the question. I do apologize. Man. No, it's I, fine. I, I, that, I can't that, waffle on. No, we were there. And this isn't on the questions, but um, if you ever decide to have another startup, if you could make buying houses easier, that would be awesome. Uh, <laughs> I just yeah. bought a house where they had to get proof of my address, but they wouldn't take a digital copy. So I had to like, I had to find something of a hard copy with my address so, yeah. I, could buy, so I could give them money. Yes, um, it's just totally bizarre. Anyway, that's yeah. <laughs> no, that, that's fine, and I'm going to respond with something like that's going to probably piss a lot of people off. So, um, my, if I ever do another business, but which you know, this this one genuinely, um, and you probably hear this a lot, but genuinely, this one, what we've built now is a category killer, as you call it. Like, I truly believe this organization. Um, we we tackle an issue that hasn't been solved yet. And that is global. So I believe we can be the next Salesforce, the next Oracle. We genuinely have something special. So, yeah. but but if if ever we were to do something different, I I, I always say, and um, I would like to disrupt lawyers and external recruiters. Oh, <laughs> here we go. <laughs> yeah. No, sorry, I was just being cheeky there. But um, but yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of um, there's a lot of things that that could be made better. Yeah. Such as buying The problem with AI and external recruitment, because people have tried it, is the empathy piece. It's really exactly. easy. I, I mean, your AI could identify a million Python developers right now, whereas it would take me two years to do that. But I could persuade one of them to join Sprout before your AI could, more than likely. Um, I, I, no, absolutely. The, the thing is, the issue is there's the, the right tools are not present to do it to to be uniquely human again. I really, yeah. I mean, we have often we have a lot of conversations and debates around this, but any in any industry, I think humans have something that that. AI will not be able to do for a very, very long time, which is empathy and connection. Yeah. And that's been built into us over millions or thousands of years of, you know, and, and what I really like Elon Musk is the same way. It's like, an, um, definitely not an Elon Musk, but um, it's hybrids, hybrids, like AI enhancing human capabilities is something yeah. I get. To, like I'm, I'm a huge sci-fi nerd. And so, you know, using AI to bring us closer to that kind of reality, not a dystopian reality, but rather a utopian reality, hopefully, is something that I think is, I think it can unlock our human potential by removing the stuff that we're actually not built for. Um, and so for your example, if the, 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 the recognition and detection of talent bringing to you that talent on a silver platter so you can do what you're uniquely good at, I think would be an incredible, um, an incredible collaboration. Yeah, no stuff like that, and even with lawyers. Like when I was again, when I was buying this house, I was speaking to like the managing partner of a very reputable law firm in Scotland, and some of the questions I was asking him like were so below his pay grade, and like some of the things he was having to dig out from the file, yeah. room and all these different things. Like he was, he's getting paid far too much money to be speaking to me. <laughs> like, get some AI to like help. Right? Imagine, yeah, you have a dashboard that you can query, and it actually spits out answers because you've got a certain kind of form. Of the question, it probably 
is asked in 100 different variations. But if you have some really strong natural language processing, it could identify the crux of the question and respond with an answer. And then the interpretation, because law is very interpretable, could then be done by, by, by a human. The ambiguity yeah, exactly. could be interpreted by a human. Because that's where AI struggles is ambiguity. That's what we we're trying to solve for. But it's really, really, really tricky. Like I'll give you an example when it comes to claims. You get a claim that says, help, our village has flooded. Now, how the fuck are you going to resolve that? You know, <laughs> so so that's why you probably need some human help. Yeah, no, I was going to say. So, I mean, we're on a very loosely focused AI podcast. I mean, I sometimes have to remember that. Um, where is it? So, actually, I've seen this from um, uh, before when, when we spoke. But the the AI machine learning part of your product it's actually really complicated, right? Because it's unstructured, it's uh, text data, it's vo- like telephone calls, it's historical data from the insurance company so you're pulling in loads from everywhere yes yes we are what could you say like ai native um we and it's not because like we i want to make clear we didn't go like start with a technology and look for a problem like a like a square peg round hole we looked at a problem and then looked at technology but but everything we do our whole workflow and um, I can bore you with every step, but maybe that's not the right thing to do. But every part of the workflow is AI-infused and, and mainly uses what you call deep learning, regional yeah. convolutional neural networks. We've even built our own. So we have patent-pending technology um, that, you know, for example, like part of what we do is OCR, optical character recognition, because we deal with a huge amount of, of documents, medical receipts, doctor's handwriting. And that has never been solved before. And we built our own. Actually, Nicholas, our CTO, who, who's... who's de facto a genius. He actually built this um, this tool which is called Denoiser, which is capable based on regional convolutional neural networks, which is deep learning, but kind of an advanced version of ML really. And what it is able to do is produce OCR capability at over 95% accuracy on, on field error rate, which means on words. And the benchmark is at 80%. We, we benchmarked against Google and we beat Google with 45% in OCR. We have de facto the best OCR in the world. And that's literally one out of the five modules that we have running. So um, so from that to the policy checking, which is contract um, validation, is completely built on natural language processing and knowledge graphs. Um, we have some ML for the fraud. So every step of the... We've been extremely ambitious. And to be honest, sometimes I wondered like, are we being too ambitious? But then it's actually working now with insurance companies. So I'm, I'm, we had this vision of end-to-end automation, which has never been done before. And uh, so we had to invest massively um, in, 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 in data science. And, um, and it worked. So, so it was a good gamble that paid off. But, um, but yeah. And the reason I guess I'm, I'm so passionate about this now is because often when you have a good relationship with, with your customers or partners – and, and, you know, they feel comfortable coming to you sometimes and saying, hey, this is this new company, this new vendor or startup that came to us with a proposal. Can you check them out? And then you check them out and, and they're selling vaporware. They're selling bullshit. That really triggers me because they might sell something to a, a not tech savvy audience. They will fail and those buyers will get really cynical. So next time someone's there that's actually genuine and has some amazing technology, they'll be like, oh, yeah, we've seen the likes of you before. And um, and that's not okay. So So I think... You know, a lot of people that say they have AI don't, and and with us, well, we, we genuinely do. So, um, no, it's crazy. So yes, um, we are an AI like, company. I can't remember the stat. I always, I always mess this up. I'm gonna, I'm gonna check it for later. Um, it's like eighty percent of AI startups don't have any AI. Some, it's something. It's a really high number. Um, 
And then my other personal bugbear, since we're on that theme today, is the, the, the term fintech being chucked to any company that has anything to do with finance. <laughs> um, it's just like just they have technology and they're in finance it doesn't necessarily mean they're a fintech um and we don't have to shorten everything to something tech either um, insure tech it's tech yeah insurance technology sounds fine um we don't have to we, do, we don't have to make it snap you could change the world and just say that you guys work in insurance technology no, no nothing else um don't have to shorten it uh anyway i'm going to keep going on on the show a fun topic that has come up, and to be honest, has mostly been positive, is around fundraising. I don't think we've had any horror stories, which is good. Um, I've had some off air, but they've not made it on air. But you just you mentioned earlier you've raised kind of around fifty million dollars. I think the Series A was like eleven million, which is, I mean, it's pretty amazing, really. How? How did you find the process? Like I said, most of the stories on the show have been relatively positive. Um, but for, for you guys, was it a good experience? Um, so so first of all, like $11 million, obviously, it's, it's really great. Um, and it's in Europe, it's a significant Series A. Sometimes when I look at you know updates from the States and people do like half a billion Series A, I'm like, what the hell? Bizarre. But uh, for European terms, it's, it's a really um, sizable Series A. Um, and the process, look, we not gonna lie, we've been we've been we've been pretty lucky. So our, our our previous two rounds, so our seed and our series A, were both preempted, which means that the VC has come to us and picked up the entire rounds, and we haven't had to go out there. So we've been extremely lucky. I think it's right place, right time, right product. So it's like so, and, and both Amadeus who did our seed round, let our seed round, and Octopus who preempted our series A, um, have, have have shown us that trust. So so. I appreciate that we didn't have to go door to door and which makes, you know, which is actually how most people have to do it. Um, but I do have a lot of empathy for people who have to do that because I had that with my previous business. And it's really hard because you basically get a bunch of people that know less than you about that specific business tell you why it's not a good idea, which can be <laughs> if you have a bit of an ego, which, which I guess I do and, and most entrepreneurs have. It's, it's really tricky. Um, but, um, but yeah, so, so we've been, um, We've been we've been pretty lucky with this business, and that and invest investment interest or VC interest have been has been really significant for us. Yeah, that's amazing, and and I suppose there's something to be said that if the product is right, then there's a decent chance of it being picked up. Like if because like you said, you did lots of due diligence, you had a problem, you kind of backed your own suspicions up, you checked if there was funding available, and you built a solution to a problem. Um, rather than just trying to chuck a solution at something. So all those things together are probably one of the reasons that the funding part was actually relatively straightforward. Yeah, maybe you could see. I always say I'm lucky and um, because it also just soft because like the previous business wasn't as successful as this one is now and will be. And I worked as hard and blood, sweat and tears. And, and so maybe I just got lucky this time or, or maybe, yeah, I did do the right kind of DD and learn from my lessons at the start. And, and, and probably it's a mixture of both, really. And I guess the main message would be, having been in both positions, like, don't give up. It's not you. <laughs> it's okay, you know. Like, keep keep going. I know it's really, really, really hard. Um, so, it might be so. hard for you to answer. I don't know if you've had any friends in this situation, but when it comes to actually working with a VC, I mean, it sounds like you guys have, have been quite lucky um, and they're on board. There's probably we've had stories in the past, and it's something to be said for kind of making sure you choose the right partner as well. Mm. Mm. Yeah, 
You're right. I mean, um, when when so Octopus when they did our Series A, it's, it's quite a funny story, and I don't I don't I don't think Nick will mind me telling you, but he basically we were we had so much traction, and I was just drowning, and I was like. Like we had an internal round set up, which would help us just to get some money and to hire the right people to deliver to our customers. And so Nick basically phoned me every day for two weeks saying, hey, man, take my money. And I was like, dude, I just, I just, I'm just too busy, please. I just need to execute. I can't lose customers. And then in the end, he just convinced me, which was amazing. And then so that's a really good start of any relationship. And then, um, but, but you're right. It's like you're getting married basically to someone and it's harder to get out of than a marriage. And so actually, if you have to get out of it, it's often the entrepreneur or the founder that that you know that's going to suffer, not the VC. So it's I, I did quite a lot of due diligence. Um, you know, talk to their other founders, ask the difficult questions. But in the end, let's not be naive. We need to be aware of what their end goal is. They are looking to make a return. So yeah. you are aligned for success to a certain degree. They need a value creation event, whether that's an exit or an IPO. You might want to create an Oracle or a Salesforce, and it's really important to align on. Do we share this ambition? But also realize that you know any VC that will then sit on your board is like a, a stakeholder, and they're an account manager from this business that that is you know chucking money in and, and getting getting a return. So it's uh, I guess it's a mix of you know like with any customer you work with, understand your stakeholders, understand what makes them work, and, and I've made definitely made mistakes there and assumed like they're they're like me. They're not, uh, but but they're really, really, really useful, and and it's like a, almost like a yin and yang sometimes. I guess like we, we we are there to help each other. It's not always a it's not always a path without kind of hurdles. Yeah, but like it never is when people are working together. I guess, but no, yeah. we're, we're very lucky in a nutshell. Yeah, and I suppose disagreeing with people is fine if you do it in the right way. Like it's good to to bounce off people. Um, before we get onto my favorite topic of recruitment something that I thought of just before we, we started recording. What has it been like? I appreciate you probably don't have a huge amount to compare it to in terms of other tech businesses because um, if you start in this one um, yourself, but what has it been like having to deal with enterprise customers? So lots of startups that I work with or um, who start out, they often kind of start small and they work their way up. And if they end up bagging Microsoft as a client, they're delighted or whatever it might be. Or sometimes it's the other way around. So a couple of our, our clients in Scotland are building an enterprise solution from scratch. So they know they know it's going to take longer, but all they need is one one customer. Obviously with Sprout, all insurance companies to some degree are pretty large. And I think I can say this, so if I can't, let me know. But you guys work with Zurich, right? So they're, yes, we do, yeah. That's probably knowledge. Yeah, cool. So, I mean, they're massive. So they're pretty what's big, the, yeah. What's the, I don't know, what's the, what's the sales cycle like? I mean, you mentioned it already, but what, what's the sales cycle? What's yeah. the what's the experience of saying, like, listen, we are a 30-person business in London. Please, yeah. can you pay us some money for this thing? <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So this is a really interesting topic, and like, we could talk about it for a whole hour. But but uh, first of all, an important nuance. When, when you said you work with Zurich or you work with Microsoft, a lot of people tend to think you work with Microsoft globally or Zurich globally. But actually, the reality is Microsoft, Zurich, they are often divided into local, regional, and national entities. So, for example, we started our collaboration with Zurich in the UK, which is still a very sizable business by any by any practical purposes, but but you have a fo- you have more of a focal point. And at the same time, yes, you work with the group level to create a global framework agreement and to scale up further. But you start working with one with one um, with one entity. I found 
wow, there's so much to say on this topic, but the the I think the the key to success here, there's a couple, is what we would call internally a design partnership. Right? Any any relationship in the enterprise world is is based on trust and solving an issue. So you have trust with your stakeholders. I work with some incredible people in Zurich. They're really some of the best people I've ever met. And um, it's really being being honest with each other and say, look, we've got we've, we're amazing. You know, we've got some amazing technologists. You've got a problem. We can help you solve the problem. That's not going to be one, two, three. So let's make it a design partnership. We're going to go on this road together, and we're going to design this solution together. For the the advantage is you get this as one of the first in the market. Our advantage is we get to build it with a partner, productionize it, get it to other partners. The commercials look look different than, than what you would normally do as you've already got a cookie-cutter product. So, yeah. And when you, if you get to do that kind of design partnership a couple of times and you manage not to be swallowed whole by one of them, which is always really, really tricky because um, we, we've, we've done a couple of those. Um, we've, really, we've got some other tier one global insurance companies that um, press releases will come out shortly, but I can't say, you know, in public yet, but, but as impressive as Zurich, you, you, you get to do that a couple of times and you get to walk that tightrope of servicing them, being in the design partnership, but not being swallowed whole, then you're going to come out of that process with, with repeatable, scalable product and reference marquee customers. And that's pretty cool. It's really tricky, man. It's really difficult, but, but it's getting there. It's pretty cool. Yeah. If you go to like medium sized insurance company in London and tell them, listen, we've got Zurich and legal in general for argument's sake use, using this technology like why wouldn't you guys like the sales cycle becomes a lot easier right you've got those yes. examples uh, yeah 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 you're right but the sales cycle look in enterprise you you imagine a sales cycle is anything from six months you start ringing a bell and and like literally you know chugging champagne um, but you you know like six months is extremely short and um, nine to anything to 18 24 months depending on the deal size the complexity is normal now, yeah. it, it depends on whether you have, when you have existing accounts where you're going to upsell into new regions, that tends to be shorter. But when it's completely new business, um, it, it can be, you know, let's say 12 months is, is a good average um, from first conversation all the way to, to signature uh, on, on a piece of paper. And that's because the, the problems are complex. There's a lot of buyers. The, the sales cycle, the buying cycles are structured in a way, often it's via RFP, you know, request for proposal processes, and the procurement is in there. So there's a lot of people that have to say yes, and no one should be able to say no because it's a very democratic process in itself. So there's a lot of a lot of people underest a lot of tech companies, I believe, at the start underestimate the challenges of complex sales cycles. It's really, yeah. really, really tricky. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, That's, it's something we find difficult as a small recruitment company. Like I'm used to speaking to. Neil's CEO of Sprout, who has a problem, and we'll try and fix that problem. When we try and go into public sector or uh, something like that, when you get those RFPs or you get procurement involved, like we we struggle because we don't have a department to deal with that, and we don't yes. we're not we're not really set up for six month sales cycles. Like we're set up for almost immediate sales cycles in a lot of in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I totally get when it goes to a technology product and an enterprise how that would be amplified yes. like even more uh, yeah exactly and that's why i looked for vc funding because i was aware of the reality of this like things always take our chairman paul is always saying look things will take twice as long cost twice as much and uh the revenue will be half <laughs> like if you take that as your standard you're going to be okay so so you need to with enterprise it takes a while and you need to make some investment to, to get out of that kind of initial value of investment and then and come out with a, with a scalable product where you're going to create incredible margins. 
especially if you're building something that's not been done or or, or kind of heavily modifying technology that you need some money to do that right so i mean in fact you, you need money and you need people which takes us on really nicely to to recruitment so i mean um i think we talked about it already sprout are somewhere in and around 30 people just now yeah what was that how did that come about so there was obviously you and a couple of others yeah when did it go from a few of you to five people 10 people and now 30 yeah. was it was it really quick or was it slow so it was kind of exponential so we went from three to six and then we went to 10 and then at the start of this year we were 10 people and had way 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 too much work everyone's working themselves to death and then we got that in in, in vc injection funding injection and so this year we grew from about 10 people to 30 so far and it doesn't sound much in absolute numbers but let me tell you man you don't have the you don't have the infrastructure so it's i it's been really tricky um and i think i've personally made the most mistakes here uh, in terms of like especially hiring too late uh, we didn't anticipate the kind of traction we were going to get. So I felt like we've ran behind the facts most of the time and just made up for it kind of working like absolute animals, everyone in the organization. So again, publicly, huge thank you, the whole Sprout team, because they've been heroes. But um, but that's been the most tricky. And then now we're kind of in a more balanced situation, which is great, and we're better. We're forecasting in a better way. Um, we should avoid doing that. But um, it's difficult, man. Like Also, like scaling up in COVID and building the right culture, is also really, really challenging. Uh, you can't see the white of pe- people's eyes. You can't meet them in person. Now we're back in the office a couple of days a week, which is easier. But but, but yeah, those are kind of separate things. And I know no, normally people talk about attracting talent. and um, But actually, maybe surprisingly, maybe not, we have found that, okay, I think what, what I found is two kind of things that we've done. You know, I, I'm, I can talk to all the time about shit that we do wrong, which is fine. But sometimes we do stuff right, which is also nice. And I think two things we've done right is I found that people really want to buy into a mission. So our mission is that we want to help 100 million people with settling their claim in the next nine years by 2030. We want to make an impact on 100 million people's lives. So when I talk to an incredible engineer that's got an offer from Facebook for twice the, twice, you know, the salary and they choose us because they're like, I, I want to help people, that mission tends to help and people find that or tell me that's quite refreshing. Um, and then the second thing is what I've noticed is it's, it's important to reach critical mass, especially in terms of technical talent or anywhere really. Like once you've got some really good talent, like, our, like I mentioned our CTO, Nicholas, who's, who's brilliant, but also Stefan, our lead data scientist, both are really geniuses in their own right. When people want to join those people, they want to have interesting problems to work on and, 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 talent to work with so once you reach a critical mass you get people coming to you say hey i know this guy i read his papers when i was doing my phd i like i want to join you guys so um i guess we've been um yeah we've been quite lucky in terms of attracting talent i think right now we have eight of the global top 100 computer vision and natural language processing data scientists on our team on kaggle which is a, a competitive data science platform so so that's that's pretty sorry i i, I just realized that sounds really braggy you should definitely brag about that. It's a good selling point. It's interesting because you speak to someone like you that it's three people to 30 people, and it, especially in COVID, I didn't even really think about that. But it's hard, like a small company to a venture-backed company, like you said, where the VC is expecting a return. Like, There's lots of different things to start thinking about, but also, I suppose, protecting your engineers and your data scientists and letting them kind of do what they were brought in to do. Is there anything that you and, and the CTO and, and the rest of the team, is there anything that you've kind of 
done when it comes to hiring technical talent that serves you really well in terms of is there a process, is there a question, is there a, a way of doing it, or is it always different? Yeah, very, very good question. And, and no, it, it's very process-oriented. So um, we, I believe very strongly in, 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 in process-oriented hiring. We, we made a couple of mistakes at the start where we just, you have a chat. That's, that doesn't work, you know. You have to check for values, behaviors, and competencies as much, you know, all three equally. And because you're trying to build a culture as well, someone has to be a value, a culture contributor. But in terms of technical talent, for example, like they go through a number of tests which are designed by our CTO, which are validated by him, and, and some other people now do that as well. We also have a we we, we chose to get a a, a talent manager or, or a recruiter um, pretty early on in in house. So Tom, um, he, he's been incredible. He's grown the whole team. Um, we we got him over like eight or nine people, and he's accelerated our entire journey. So I think and people were like questioning me at the start, like you're eight people. Why do you need like a talent manager? And I'm now I feel I'm, I'm very looking back. I'm happy we made that choice. Because um, if you get someone, you know, like yourself, like you said it before, you can persuade that Python engineer to join that company. Um, having someone like that that can do that with anyone coming in is, I think, is extremely valuable. And they can put in the right process, the right diligence, the right uh, discipline. So everyone's measured in the same way, compensated across the same frameworks and benchmarks. So you get like you can be transparent yeah. and everyone feels valued. It's the same as any part of your business. Like if you're, if you know you're going to be hiring a lot of people, you should have someone in the business who knows how to hire people, because it's kind of like the CEO is often the best salesperson in the business, right? Because it's if if they if it's their. I business. don't know. You tell me. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, often at the start, the CEO is in charge of sales, right? That's that's yes, the that's, one that's of the true. big jobs. At some point, you're going to have to hire a head of sales or a, or a sales director. And it's very similar to recruitment. You're probably the best person to recruit when you're three people. But when you get to 300 people and you're trying to manage a global organization, like good luck trying to hire people at the same time. Um, So if you can do it early, like what you guys did, it's actually a really sensible thing to do if there's enough people to hire. We've seen that sometimes where someone maybe pull, they pull the trigger too early on getting somebody in-house to do recruitment and there's not there's not actually that much recruitment to be done. Um, exactly. And that can be frustrating. Or they hire someone super junior that the CEO ends up picking up most of it anyway. Absolutely, um, you're right. You need to have someone experienced. And, but we, you know, and, 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 like, I don't want to... I don't want to crack down on like external recruitment. Like, I was making a joke earlier, so I do apologize if it was that if that was out of line. But it's you know, one of the you, nicest things anyone said about external recruitment. Don't worry. Yeah, about it. but uh, you you do you do you do still work for for specialized roles. You do still work like you want a VPN like VP engineering. You're looking for a needle in a haystack. You need to go to specialists that have networks. In the end, it's all about network. Yeah. And um, but but having someone that can coordinate all the efforts and know what you're looking for and and. I really like working in that kind of partnership is, is, is very, very valuable because often the line manager might know what they're looking for, but might not know the right process and discipline to go through. And, and yeah. look, the way I constantly think is, is this scalable? Yeah, having, doing it a couple of times is fine, but it needs to be scalable as we grow. We can't, we can't lag behind. Yeah. So that's kind of um, how, how I try to approach every, everything. Is this scalable? No, and I really like the fact that you – and it's something – I think larger companies are really bad at is like leveraging your own team to help you hire. So like if you yeah, well, referrals is the, I mean, the super obvious one, but even just shouting about the fact that your lead data scientist is like really well known just for example, in the world of NLP or your CTO has built a kind of deep learning 
platform from scratch. It's like, as a data scientist, you probably want to go work with that guy and yeah. just to pick a big company. Like we said, Facebook earlier, like if you want to go be a data scientist at Facebook, you're just going to be sitting doing stuff that someone's already done. Cogging the machine. Yeah, no one cares you who you are. impact. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I, I know they obviously pay loads, but it kind of gets to a point, especially COVID. I think COVID's probably helped you guys hire because people are, care a little bit more about what they do. Mm. And we, we've, we've hired all over the world. We've gone for talent over location. So we've That's got good. people in Russia, Brazil, Vietnam, Denmark, Germany. Um, so we've got about 50% of the company outside of the UK, 50% in the UK. And then, you know, uh, which is another kind of added variable in building a great culture. But, but, but it's been worth it in terms of attracting talent. We'll just touch on this lastly, because it is, it's interesting, because we've heard a lot of people say that not being in the same office has made culture more difficult. Quite often when you get into it, it just means that they can't go for a pint together, which isn't really the same thing as a good culture. But if you're hiring all over the world, essentially, do you plan on getting everyone together like once or twice a year, mm-hmm. like in a, lo- oh, in a yeah. location? Yeah. Oh yeah. People are like throwing things. When we're in the office, people throw things at me like I pizza or like, let's go there. Like, okay, calm down. We can go to Cardiff as well. No. <laughs> but yeah. So like uh, two, two times a year, we are planning to get everyone together for, for workshopping, for being together. It's the small things, you know, the, the chat around the coffee machine or the, the you know, the, um, I think it's really valuable to get everyone together and, and, and put all our noses in the same direction again a couple yeah. of times. But to be honest, I'm not an expert. You you should ask our new head of people that is joining us in, in two weeks. Um, they, you know, that we've hired her specifically to help us tackle these challenges because I'm going to be honest, like I don't have all the answers, man. And I've made loads of mistakes. And, and um, sometimes you just need to know, like, you know, some there's someone out there that knows way better than me. So I'm just going to have them come in and, and help us solve these issues. Yeah, no, I think a lot of companies are going to, have to try and solve the kind of remote hybrid future culture yeah. like, oh, and it'll be hard and that's what i keep saying to a lot of our clients like they're like oh what's everyone else doing and i was like well nobody knows yet no so we're, we'll find out in six months what everyone else is doing yeah um so yeah it'll be interesting i mean what i also just tell everyone is i don't speak to many people that want to work 100 percent remote and i don't speak to many people that want to work 100 percent in the office like most people are just looking for st- flexibility yeah, we have the same experience. We we did like um, a survey, and people want that flexibility, but they also want human contact. Yeah. So um, it's probably going to end up somewhere in a hybrid model. Yeah, and just kind of yeah, see what works for people, especially at the size you guys are at. You can you can be way more flexible than like I don't know Deloitte, for example, who actually apparently have done quite well. But um, it, yeah, it's easier for you guys to tell thirty people this is what we're doing than. Like entire European setup, and just lastly, what if we were to get you back on next year? What do you think Sprout would look like in a year's time? I mean, what's the plans? Good question. Bit of a boring answer, really. I well, maybe not boring, but like basically a couple of things like strategic focus, tactical alignment. You know. Um, focus relentlessly on making our customer, current customers happy with the product and the service, onboard new customers at a sustainable pace and set up for a Series B next year. Um, get hit, hit those metrics. Like that is our next 12 months, nine months, 12 months future. And then raise an incredible Series B at a, at a great valuation and, um, and then hyperscale. So the Series B for us will be a milestone in terms of hyperscaling 
um, um, across the, you know, even though we're already in three continents, but really, really kind of spreading our wings across various continents and, 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 and growing at, at a massive rate. That's, uh, that's, that's, that's our next 12 months. Yeah. It's pretty, no, it's a, pretty it crazy. Sounds good. Um, and we'll definitely keep an eye on it. And obviously, as and when these things happen, we'll, we'll kind of get an yeah. back on the show. And, and, see and, and personally, I've got a little one on the way. My, my, wife's, my wife's six months pregnant, and um, it's our first one. And, um, and it's a amazing. Boy. And uh, I don't know if I should have told you that. But anyway, um, so I'm going to have a little one then. So I'm personally, it's quite funny, really, because I, I started a couple of businesses and, and, um, but but this 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 prospect is is terrifying. <laughs> so oh, it's, so, it's it's so I'm shitting myself, man. But uh, so yeah, we'll talk next year. You know the name and, and if everything's going well. And <laughs> no, um, I was telling you yesterday that uh, yeah, we've got a four month old and uh, yeah, yeah, you got it's, four, yeah, it's it's wild, um, but fun. I, I look. I think about it like this, right? They they have like what is it called, like child amnesia for the first two years, which is like a trial period for us to get it right. <laughs> yeah, apparently I got dropped on my head several times when I was a kid. I don't remember any of it, so it's fine. Um, and it doesn't <laughs> seem to have done lasting damage. Nice one. Well, well thank you so much for coming on. Um, I really do appreciate it, and, and I love the sound of um, what you guys are doing. So um, we'll we'll hopefully get to chat again and and uh, and see how it's all went. Yes. Well. Well. Thank you. Really. Thank you so much, Liam. I've, I've really enjoyed just taking an hour of, out of my day and, 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 and chatting to you. And, and yeah, maybe hope one day you'll have me back. I guess depends on, on the on the listening numbers for this one. <laughs> and and um, so yeah, but really, thank you so much. Thank you.